We'll keep working on those listening skills. Well, there's a couple of birthdays happening this weekend, and I see, oh, the, the, uh, the birthday boy just headed down to help with Children's Church. So I was going to put Caden on the spot, but no, he's, he's already bailed, so I missed, missed my opportunity. I think there's a couple more birthdays coming up uh, this week, though. I see Derek's birthday is tomorrow, so happy birthday to you tomorrow. And my mom's birthday is in two days, so happy birthday to you as well, Mom. And uh, yeah, we just want to wish you all, and Caden, who went downstairs, God's blessing for another year, and that he would give you a great uh, celebration on your birthdays today. We're in the season of Lent already. We're, we're a week and a little bit into the season of Lent as we prepare ourselves to once again celebrate the uh, beautiful resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Easter. And yet as we, we prepare ourselves for Easter, we journey on the pathway of the cross and we, we come to Good Friday and we consider our Lord's sacrifice once again. And so as we prepare ourselves for this journey, I want to introduce a new series that we're going to begin on as we do this, entitled, At the Crossroads of Life and Death. And so I would like to, um, in this series, present us with a series of characters who are all given the opportunity to meet at the cross of Jesus Christ and the different responses that we see as they've come to the cross. And so it really is a crossroads where people are brought to make decisions. Would you now bow with me and let's begin our study together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for each one who is here this morning. We know, Lord, that none of us are here by chance, but that you have seen fit for us to be here, that you have a word for us, and that, Lord, as you have met with us through worship and in prayer, we now anticipate, Lord, meeting with you in your word, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, Lord, into hearing what you have for us. Help us to understand. Help us to hear what you have. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint this word, give me the courage to speak it boldly as I should, and I pray, Father, for your anointing upon it. In your name I pray. Amen. There's a story told that during a flight on a commercial airline, a flight attendant went up to a passenger and asked if he would like dinner. So the passenger asked, what are my choices? To which the flight attendant answered, your choices are yes or no. Now, if you've ever had an in-flight meal, you know that's usually how it works. There's not a whole menu to, to choose from. But most, most decisions in life aren't always that clear-cut. But the fact remains that as we travel down the road of life, we all face decisions on a daily basis. On the most practical level, as we travel down the road in our vehicles, for example, you, chances are very good you traveled in a vehicle, drove down roads on your way here. Most of you didn't end up coming straight to the church. Chances are you were faced with a barrage of choices along the way. Which way to turn? You came upon intersections or crossroads where you were presented with options. Turn left, turn right, keep going straight. In fact, you were probably presented with multiple options on the roadway as you came to church this morning. In much the same way, as we travel on the road of life, we are presented with choices, options, crossroads, forks in the road, constantly along the path. The journey begins, of course, with our birth, and it ends with our death. But in between those two points of life and death, we inevitably come upon crossroads. Let me give you a definition of a crossroad this morning. 
A crossroad is a place where two roads intersect, forcing us to make a choice. Turn left, right, or keep going straight. A crossroad is a place of decision. So as we think of the concept of a crossroad this week and as we continue on our journey towards Good Friday, let's keep that in mind. A crossroad is a place of decision. But have you ever taken the time to consider the shape of a crossroad? Have you ever thought about the, the shape that it represents? Can anyone help me out here? What is the shape of a crossroad? It's in the shape of a T or a cross. A cross. Interesting. That here, a crossroad, a place of decision, is literally in the shape of a cross. You know, maybe it's just a coincidence, but I believe that the countless crossroads that literally cover this entire planet is just another one of God's many ways of pointing us towards another cross, the cross of his son. I remember when I was just a boy, maybe seven or eight years old, something like that, we had this place directly west of our yard, about a quarter mile west, that we have always called the corner. Now, it doesn't really make sense when you think about it, because it's not really a corner, it's an intersection, it's a crossroad, and yet for some reason, we've always called it the corner, and that's just always in our family language. We know what we're talking about when we say the corner. And so I was just a boy, maybe seven or eight years old, and I had rode on my bike to the corner, and I remember I was there by myself, and I was sitting right in the middle of the intersection on my bike, and I just stopped, and I was, I don't know what I was doing, but for some reason, I just decided that I was going to look in each direction down each roadway. And so I remember I, I, looked, I looked north, I looked east, I looked south, I looked west, and as I looked directly down each roadway, suddenly it struck me that I was standing on a cross, and I was directly in the center right smack dab in the middle of a cross. And it was as though God said to me right in that very moment, Danny, I died on a cross for you. I just remember that hit me like a lightning bolt out of the clear blue sky. Danny, I died on the cross for you. That's simple yet profound truth has come to define my life. I didn't completely understand it that day beyond the simple message that it portrayed that, yes, God died for me. And yet, as I've come to embrace that truth, it embodies my life. What I do, who I am, is defined by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for me. There I was, standing at the crossroads of an intersection that I'd driven by many times my whole life, and yet somehow it symbolized something more the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the cross of Jesus Christ divides all of history? All of history must pass by the cross. It divides it in two. We even have it on our calendars. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, after Christ. And so here we are in the year 2014, A.D., Anno Domini. We are still counting the crossroads of all of history on our calendars. And so we see that Jesus' cross is not just something for a few people, it is for all people, for all time. It's a place of decision, a place that demands an answer. 
And so every last person who arrives at the crossroad of Calvary is at the intersection of life and death. What will you choose? What road will you travel? Our call to worship this morning is the words of our Lord Jesus who presents us with a stark challenge. He says it like this in verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is the choice that the cross of Jesus Christ demands. And so this season of Lent, as we journey towards Good Friday and Easter, we are going to continue to look at these characters who were forced to make a decision at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to begin with Mary Magdalene. In John chapter 19 and verse 25, we find Mary Magdalene as one of those who is standing with Jesus on the hill of Calvary. We read that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, our sheer familiarity with the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the cross of Calvary often causes us not to question the details. We kind of just read it over and we don't really pause to consider the whys and the whos and and all of the things that surrounded it. But really, if we look at this story with fresh eyes, I think it begs the question, what were these women doing at a place of crucifixion? What were they doing there? Why were they at a place that is something horrific, something barbaric? You know, remember that crucifixion is the most excruciating way that man has ever devised to kill another man. It is a terrible spectacle. By Roman law, it was reserved for only the worst criminals. Those whose death could serve as an example to others. Don't mess with Rome. This is what happens to the enemies of Rome. And aside from this horrifying spectacle of torture, humiliation, and blood, just being associated, think of this, being associated with a condemned enemy of Rome is a very dangerous thing to do. Remember, they are not just saying, we're going to kill this person. If they just wanted to kill him, they'd chop his head off and it'd be over and done with. That was often the merciful means of execution in that day, was beheading. No, the cross was reserved for those who was to be a symbol. Don't be like this person. Learn from them. Because this could happen to you if you don't change. And so to be associated with someone who's condemned in this manner is a dangerous thing. You're walking on dangerous ground. And so for these women to be there, they were associating themselves with a condemned criminal, someone who was deemed worthy of crucifixion. Now, I realize that some scholars explain away the women's presence at the cross by saying that perhaps in those days, women were not considered as important as today, so no one would have taken any notice of them. And so, therefore, these women were at no risk of being associated by being near the cross of Christ. But I think that that's a poor explanation, an unworthy explanation, because it's always a dangerous thing to be associated with a man that the Roman government declared to be so dangerous a criminal that he deserves a cross. No, the, the presence of these women at the cross was not due to the fact that they were so unimportant that no one would have taken notice of them. Instead, I'm convinced that they were there because they loved Jesus so much that they were willing to risk their lives to stay by his side. 
They were so committed and dedicated to following the Lord Jesus that they would not abandon him even in the hour of death. Even though they didn't understand what was happening, they could not, they would not forsake him. There they were, bewildered, heartbroken, drenched in sorrow, yes, all of those things, but they were there. Consider that when all of the other disciples except one had already deserted Jesus, they had either betrayed him as Judas had or they had run away. Only one disciple stayed at the cross. We're going to look at him in a, in a future sermon. Only one disciple stayed. The others either betrayed him or ran. And yet here's four women who refused to run away, refused to abandon Jesus to die alone. And there they were. They stood at the cross of Christ. William Barclay once wrote, Love clings to Christ, even when the intellect cannot understand. It is only love which can give us a hold on Christ that not even the most bewildering experiences can break. And so as we consider the love of these women, the the incredible devotion that they had for the Lord, we can most easily understand why Mary, Jesus' mother, was at the cross. You know, a mother's love so strong she was simply unable to abandon her son to die alone. As horrific as the scene was, she just couldn't leave him. And so we can also understand Mary's sister, who is James and John's mother. She is there as well. We can understand the family ties, the devotion to being there. But what of Mary Magdalene? What motivated her to stand by Jesus as he died on that cross? Why is she there? Now, Mary Magdalene is a very interesting character. She has been the subject of much speculation and legend. For example, many believe that she had been a prostitute. But while that is possible, the Bible doesn't actually say that. In fact, the Bible actually has surprisingly little to say directly about her. Some suspect that she may have been the woman who was caught in adultery, that was brought before Jesus to be stoned. Or that perhaps she was the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and then washed it with her hair. But while that may be the case, and I suspect that the latter is true, that she is that woman, she is not named in that story. The identity remains anonymous. And so neither of those women are given names, and so though they could have been Mary, it is not for certain that it was Mary Magdalene. In fact, the most concrete details that we are given of her comes from Luke chapter 8 and verses 1 to 3. I'd like to draw your attention there. It's an often overlooked passage, as of course it is the the prelude to the story of the sower and the seed, a a passage we are very familiar with. And yet, this is the lead-in. Let's look at the context in which Jesus delivered that story of the sower and the seed. Luke chapter 8, and verses 1 to 3. Beginning in verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages. He's he's on the road a lot. He's traveling. He's proclaiming the kingdom. Think about this. He's, He's on the move. Afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. A very interesting passage. We most often skip over it. And yet, here's 
Jesus' 12 disciples and closely linked with them, those that were also traveling with Jesus' entourage, are women who are named and are given the description that many of them, if not all of them, had had demons or unclean spirits cast out of them or healed. And we read that specifically, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Why was Mary standing at the cross of Jesus Christ? What love and devotion spurred her on to standing by his side, even when everything seemed to be going wrong? He had healed her. He had not only healed her, he had delivered her from demonic oppression and possession. Incredible. Mary Magdalene, someone who had been demon-possessed by seven demons. Not one, not two, seven. What deliverance she must have experienced in her life. Think about this. You know, details as to how those seven demons manifested themselves in her life, those, those are not given. We don't know what happened. But from a full understanding of Scripture, as we look at other cases of demonic oppression or possession, we understand that they are fallen angels. Demons are fallen angels who had revolted against God, led by an archangel named Lucifer, who we have, of course, come to know as Satan. These angels were defeated and cast from heaven. And since that time, they have continued to battle against God in an attempt to keep as many people as possible from turning to him, trying to stop God's purposes on earth. And they continue to war against God and against his people. And one of the many ways that they can do that is by either oppressing or actually possessing people. And so we read here that Mary Magdalene was one of those people. And undoubtedly, the seven demons were inflicting inner turmoil in her mind, her heart, her spirit, Undoubtedly, they were causing her to say and do things that she didn't want to say or do. In other words, they held her captive. She was powerless before them because she couldn't say no to them. And so we probably can be safe in assuming that she tried ways of being healed. She maybe tried to fight back in her own strength to be rid of them. Um, it's probably safe to say that friends or family who were concerned about her and her perhaps erratic behavior tried ways of trying to ward off the evil spirits. But whatever was tried to deliver her from these spirits, nothing had worked. They continued to be a, a clear presence in her life. She was not powerful enough to gain the victory over them by herself. She needed someone stronger to give her victory over the enemy, both within and without. And so one day, we don't know when, but one day, Mary meets Jesus. The seven demons we can know became agitated, frightened. They knew who Jesus really was. They knew him from his days when they were in his throne room and saw his unveiled glory before God. The demons knew that they didn't stand a chance against God in the flesh. And so we don't know exactly how it happened. Perhaps the demons begged Jesus for mercy as others had done. Perhaps Jesus silenced them as he did in many other cases. Perhaps they shrieked as they left or simply left with a sigh. But whatever the case is, we know that they left. They were gone, never to return again. You know, with you and I, seven against one is not a fair fight, is it? 
1 versus 7. Those aren't very good odds, are they? Imagine you versus seven demons. What do you think your odds are in winning that battle? What do you think Mary's chances were of having victory herself? But along comes Jesus. Seven against one is not a fair fight when the one is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Jesus shows up and he delivers her. You know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Mary Magdalene could not overcome the enemy by herself, but that day Jesus won it for her. That day everything changed. She was delivered, she was healed, and she was truly free, truly free for the first time in her entire life. So let me ask you, has Jesus set you free? Has he delivered you from the enemy? Has he healed you? Are you free today? Are you free from the enemy? Are you free from sin? Are you free from the fear of death? Because Jesus has given you complete deliverance and victory. You know, just like Mary Magdalene, only Jesus can give you victory. Do you trust him to do it? To to come into your life and not only send the enemy running, but to take up permanent residence so that if the enemy ever shows up again, he'll answer the door. What are you doing back here? There's a new master in this house, and there's no room for you. And I guarantee you that every time Jesus answers the door, the enemy is going to hightail it. The enemy is going to run because he is stronger. Someone greater has come. Someone who can vanquish the enemy with a single word. He will give you the victory, but you have to trust him for it. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we've often taken that verse and done two parts of it. The last two. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what we often take it as. And we think that if we personally resist the devil, he's going to run. But you know what? If it's just me resisting him, he's going to laugh in my face. (laughs) Oh, it's just you, Danny. I can take you down every day of the week. It's, It's no contest. If it's just me resisting, the first part is crucial. Submit yourselves then unto God. Submit unto God. What does that mean? What does the the word submit mean in this context? What it means is that we surrender control and our own rights to someone else. So submitting to God means we are surrendering control, we are surrendering our own rights to Him. So maybe you're trying to resist the devil. Maybe you're trying to resist temptations in your life that keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And you keep falling and you keep falling and you keep falling and you keep resisting. And this cycle in your life is just spinning over and over and over again. And you keep thinking to yourself, why is the same thing happening? Why isn't he running away like the Bible says? Are you submitting unto God? Have you surrendered complete control unto him? Have you surrendered the right to your own life to him? You see, when we do that, Jesus not only takes up residence, but he takes up control. He becomes the Lord. He sits on the throne of our heart, not us. There's not room for two people on the throne of our heart. It's either him or us. We can't have it both ways. 
We can't just say, uh, Jesus, you can have the throne on Sundays and uh, half a Saturday, but the rest is mine. No, it doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing. He is sitting on the throne or he's not. And if we're on the throne, we're saying, we're in charge. We're the Lord of our heart. And when the enemy shows up with a temptation, if we think it's up to us and we're sitting on the throne, we're easy prey to him. And we will fall again and again and again. But when Jesus is on that throne and the enemy shows up, it's a different story, my friends. He will give us the victory. That's what calling him Lord truly means. Complete surrender unto him. Mary submitted to Jesus as her Lord, and he delivered her. And that is why she could not leave Jesus' side, even while he hung on that cross. He had done so much for her. He had delivered her, healed her, given her victory in life. How could she do any less for him? How could she abandon him? There's a beautiful old hymn that we often sing with deep feeling. It's entitled, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. But I often wonder, if you and I had been there, would we have wanted to be near the cross? Would we have dared to climb that hill and stand by him, to be associated with him as he died a criminal, an enemy of Rome? Or would we have been like Mary Magdalene? Would we have been there, standing by his side? Or would we have been amongst those disciples who are away hiding, fearful that we too might be arrested and crucified alongside him? You know, if justice truly be served, that is what our sin deserves. Our sin deserves death. The song that we sang earlier this morning, In Christ Alone, a powerful song with powerful words. It has a verse that says, Till on that cross as Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. It never stops overwhelming me, that thought that all of my sin, all of my sin was heaped upon him. He bore the full judgment that my sin deserves. And so through no effort on my part, not having done one single thing to earn or deserve it, I am forgiven, completely, utterly, no strings attached. It is overwhelming to me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This, my friends, is grace. This is amazing grace. This is incredible grace, unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor towards all of us, and it centers on the cross. It's been said that the cross of Jesus Christ is the intersection of God's love and his justice. The cross is the intersection of God's love and his justice. Are you fully aware that your sin deserves nothing less, nothing less than God's holy wrath? Not because he is a God of wrath, but because he is a holy God. And as a holy and perfectly righteous God, a perfect judge, our sin demands justice. And so our sin demands judgment. You know, this is not popular theology today. In fact, just last summer, the Presbyterian denomination was compiling and putting together a new hymnal. 
And a controversy arose over the song that we sang this morning, In Christ Alone. Because of that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. There were those who deemed that language too harsh, and so they requested the authors of the song to change the line to, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. When the request was denied by the authors, they chose to remove the song from the hymnal altogether, saying, quote, The view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage his anger would have a negative impact on worshippers' education. Talk about gutting the heart of the gospel message. To view the blood-soaked barbarity of crucifixion as anything but harsh is absurd. Do not be deceived by those who want to soften the edge of the gospel with some sort of lovey-dovey, watered-down version that removes our own guilt from the equation. Make no mistake about it. Jesus hung on that cross because of your sin and my sin. He took the full brunt of God's wrath that we deserved upon himself, in his body, in his soul, and in his spirit. He bore it. He became sin for us, Scripture says. He was separated from God, his Father, something he had never experienced in time eternity, that he cries out, Oh my Lord, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is what he went through. Yes, the wrath of God was satisfied, my friends. This was not something that he went through easily or lightly. This is as horrific an event as we could ever imagine. Don't ever let anyone water that down to soften it, to take our guilt out of the equation. Because it is only when we fully accept our place at the cross that the love of God is truly magnified. It is only when I can look at the cross and say, that is Danny's cross. My sin died there. That is when God's love is magnified, my friends. Not when I say, no, it wasn't about me. You know, Jesus just did that and, you know, I just accept it. You know, it really had nothing to do with me. No, I was there. My sin was there. And that is what magnifies God's love for me, my friends, is when I accept that Jesus died on that cross for me. And that is what he said to me as a seven or eight-year-old boy standing at the middle of that crossroad. I died on the cross for you and because of you. Your sin was there that day. Do you believe that? Do you accept that I forgave you completely and perfectly that day? And that is why the cross demands a decision. Listen, if Jesus was willing to die on the cross for you, are you now willing to live completely for him. Matthew chapter 7 again, and verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, many. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. My friends, are you with the many or the few? This is the most important question that you will ever be asked in your entire life. If Jesus was willing to die on the cross for you, are you now willing to live completely for him? 
If like Mary Magdalene, Jesus has delivered you, healed you, set you free, are you now willing to stand at the crossroads of life and death and declare, Jesus is my Lord, world. Jesus is my Lord. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power for the salvation of anyone who would believe. Are you willing to declare that? And let me warn you when I ask you that question, don't answer too quickly. Don't be too glib in your response or too sure. Because during this season of Lent, let's not be too hasty to say, Oh, I trusted Jesus as my Savior many years ago. You know, there's no need to linger too long on the the cross. There's no need for me to hear the gospel message again. I accepted it many years ago. I've already been there, done that. Let's just move on with life already. No need to linger at the cross. Let's guard against that attitude, my friends. You see, those of us who have been Christians for many years, there's a temptation to develop this inner attitude of indifference or even boredom towards the gospel message. Warren Wearsby once wrote, The good news of the gospel today is no longer good, nor is it news. My friends, we need to guard against this. We must be diligent against this attitude forming in our hearts and sneaking in to our church You know, I have learned in my life that no matter how much I mature or learn or grow about my faith, I can never leave the cross behind. I can never leave the cross in the rearview mirror. It must be central to my life every day. For the cross of Christ still holds the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that includes me. So let me ask you today, does the cross still hold that power in your life? Does it have the power to move you? Is it central to your life? Or have you just kind of become indifferent to it? I want to close with this story that a mother shared. She says, My daughter was four years old and was about to see her first Easter Passion play. It happened every year in our church, a church tradition. And as the play started, she saw the actors come on stage and she screamed with excitement, There's Jesus! Everyone chuckled nearby. Jesus was playing with the children on the stage and she wanted to know why she couldn't go up and play with Jesus too. My response to her was, well, honey, this is just a play. He's only an actor. This this isn't real. Just watch. And so during a scene of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, suddenly soldiers come barging and yelling and screaming and my daughter became so frightened that she turned her face away, burying it in my chest and she begins to cry. And again, I just whispered to her, it's okay, honey. This is only a play. They're only actors, it's not real. And so she agreed to keep watching some more. But then came that dreadful scene. Down the aisle of the church comes Jesus dragging the cross. People are yelling and cursing and the soldiers are mocking him. And This was just all too much for her. She could not bear to watch. I held her tightly and tried to comfort her. It's okay, honey. It's only a play. These are only actors. It's not real. Then the soldiers grabbed Jesus threw him against the cross, picked up a hammer, and bam! The hammer descended, and she let out a shriek. She screamed at the top of her lungs. Everyone in the entire audience could hear her cry, No! They're killing my Jesus! She cried so loudly that I ran with her out to the back. I took her into a back room where there was a large TV screen where we could finish watching the play. I assured her that Jesus would come back to life, that the resurrection was coming, you just got to wait for it. 
And she would not be consoled until she saw Jesus walk out of the tomb. And then finally she wiped her tears and smiled again. And many people were in the auditorium that day. Like me, they had all gone to see a play, only actors. It's not real. But when they saw the gospel message again through the eyes of a child, it became real and personal once again. He's my Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for me. Is he your Jesus? So here we are again. We stand at the crossroads of life and death. Which road are you on? Which path have you chosen? Because Jesus today has given you another opportunity to choose his path. To say, I want the road of life that leads unto eternal life. Are you stuck today, wondering, why can't I have victory in my life? Why can't I have victory over sin and Satan and temptation? Maybe today Jesus is saying, have you made me Lord? Have you allowed me to sit on the throne of your heart? Maybe you need to submit yourself unto him and give up complete control. Maybe today is that, that is what Jesus is saying to you. And maybe for some of you, you stand at this crossroad and you've never been here before. Jesus says, come my way. I will show you things that you can't imagine. It won't be easy. I'm not guaranteeing an easy life, but I'm guaranteeing you a life of freedom, of hope, of healing, and of purpose. And it will end with salvation that will last forever. And so this Easter, don't pass by the cross and leave unchanged. May each of us come to the crossroads of life and death and allow God to do his work in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its power in our lives. Thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus, we give you all honor and glory and praise that you went to the cross willingly to die in our place, to die in the place of sinners, to take our sin upon yourself and our judgment, bearing the full wrath of God that our sin deserved upon yourself so that it could be paid for, so that we could be forgiven and we could simply receive it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts in such a way that we would be in awe of your sacrifice and what you've done for us. May it change us, Lord, by your power that is at work within us. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing and what you have yet to do in our hearts. Bless each one now, I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.